0: Okay, welcome to Plum Creek Chapel and uh, we are ready to get started. Thank you for those of, us, th- those of you joining us uh, online and uh, we appreciate your patience. We were uh, waxing eloquent about a number of important topics and I always enjoy the fellowship and so one of my shortcomings is I tend to get distracted and suddenly look at my watch and realize we're running four minutes late. So anyway, thanks for your patience, but we're ready to get started uh, tonight. Let me mention a couple of uh, announcements as we usually do during the uh, during our midweek uh, studies just to kind of keep you informed. Um, yesterday was a busy day uh, podcast wise. I was doing my monthly uh, appearance on the Stand Up for the Truth radio program with David Fiorazzo. We talked about the coming one world system and how close are we. And man, it was a great uh, show, um, really kind of Surprised, frankly, at the response. Uh, uh, David Fiorazzo uh, emailed me this morning and said, in all his years, it was it broke records for the number of downloads in a single day. I think people are interested in how close are we to the end of the age? You know, to we see all this talk about a one-world government, about the World Economic Forum, about uh, this digital digital currency, and all of these things, and. People are antsy about it. So uh, if you haven't listened to that, go back and check that out at notbyworks.org. And then right on the heels of that was my regular Tuesday uh, appearance on Christian Underground News Network with Curtis Chamberlain. And we talked about the rising tide of apostasy and what are some examples of that uh, in the church uh, today. So I encourage you to check that one out too. They're both still posted at uh, not notbyworks.org. Of course, the book is still gaining traction. If you've not got it or know somebody who needs it, uh, you can check that out at spiritoftheantichrist.org and uh, getting uh, regular inquiries and orders every day from folks who are spreading the word and realize that it's a, an important work for a time such as this. So uh, for those of you here at Plum Creek Chapel, we've got some copies out on the resource table. Feel free to pick one up. Those of you watching this online, you can check it out at spiritoftheantichrist.org. Uh, we are still going strong in our Sunday morning series, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. Been doing that for a year and a half now and really getting into some encouraging material about the coming millennial phase of the kingdom, the coming reign of Christ, uh, ultimately the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. Uh, so I encourage you to come out on Sundays at 9 o'clock here in Sedalia or if you uh, are watching online, you can stream that at 9 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Uh, All of the past 57, I think it is now, sessions of that are available uh, to watch for free at notbyworks.org, and you can check that under the videos section. Then I haven't mentioned it in a while, but someone reminded me that uh, you need to promote the app. Not By Works has its own app that works on uh, all mobile devices, mobile phones, uh, Apple, Android, you name it. Uh, And if you go to our website, on the highlight banner there. If you just scroll through it till you see a highlight banner that looks just like this, except it says click here. You can click that and it'll tell you how to download the app. The nice thing about that is it gives you in one location right there on your phone all of our podcasts. anytime a new podcast is posted, all of our devotionals are posted there, uh, other links to... Uh, resources on our website. Uh, It's just a great handy place to kind of keep up with all things uh, Not By Works. You can go to our newsletter page and read our uh, latest newsletter and things like that. Uh, So check out the Not By Works app. And then uh, finally, this series that we are studying now on Wednesday nights is all about Calvinism. And so kind of like we did with our What Lies Ahead series, the book that sort of we're using as a basis for that study. We're offering that at 25% off. Now, for those of you here, they're available out on the table. Uh, you can feel free to pick one up. And if you want, the church has purchased those. If you want to make a donation to Plum Creek Chapel, that's, that's great, but don't feel obligated. Those of you watching online, we're going to use, do the same thing with a coupon code GOSPEL, all capitals, G-O-S-P-E-L. And if you want to f- have further research on this subject of calvinism the nature of saving faith what is the gospel all things related to the gospel i encourage you to pick up the book getting the gospel wrong Uh, and with that uh, let's dive into uh, our study tonight so this is our second session on what is calvinism and is it biblical and i'd like to begin by addressing a question that came up last week that I was caught flat-footed on. It's just been so long since I've taught church history. I used to teach it at the uh, Bible College level at uh, Capitol Bible College in Washington, D.C. for about four semesters in a row uh, that I was embarrassed that I didn't have the answer at my fingertips. But I wanted to get back and answer the question, what's the relationship, if any, between John Calvin and Martin Luther? So you see on the screen there, they dates. You know, John Calvin was born in 1509, died in 1564. Martin Luther was born in 1483 and died in 1546. So they did overlap a little bit, but there's no record that the two men ever met. And of course, uh, since Calvin was born in 1509, that means he was only eight years old at the time Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517. Remember, it was not too long ago that we celebrated the 500th anniversary of that in in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was uh, Calvin was only eight years old at that time, and Calvin, moreover, didn't really begin to gain any kind of notoriety until he published his uh, Institutes of Christian Religion, which was in 1536. Uh, so that was about 10 years before Martin Luther died. So really, it was the last 10 years of Calvin's life that. Uh, I mean, of Luther's life, that Calvin began to kind of get into the mainstream. And and because of that, Calvin's name does come up in Luther's writings uh, and his table talks. Uh, you know, Archie Sproul has Table Talk a magazine, I think it is. Well, that's, uh, you know, taken from uh, Martin Luther's writings. Um But uh, back in as early as 1539, so that'd be three years after Calvin published his institutes, uh, Luther refers uh, to Calvin and praises him for some of his writings. But over the course of time, it's clear from Luther's writings that he kind of shifted gears and he wasn't quite so positive about Calvin. And um, it's uh, recorded uh, somewhere that Calvin was that Luther said Calvin was, quote, educated, but strongly suspected of the error of the sacramentarians, which, what are sacramentarians? It just means that Calvin had a different view about the Lord's Supper than the Lutheran branch of the Reformation did, and we talked a little bit about that last week, how Lutheran church today has a, you know, a more of a sacramental view of the Lord's Supper, that it actually imparts salvation. They believe in infant baptism in that regard, those types of things. So Luther seemed to be more critical uh, later on, Uh, but the bottom line is, in answer to the question from Luther's perspective, Calvin was more of a footnote. He didn't really talk about him much, and they only overlapped uh, briefly. But for our purposes, we're talking about uh, the guy on the left there, John Calvin, the namesake of what is today called Calvinism, or the Calvinistic view of theology. And as we left off with last week, the five points of Calvinism form the acronym TULIP. And it was funny, on the the podcast yesterday with uh, Curtis Chamberlain and Pastor Dick Chamberlain, uh, the hosts of the Christian Underground News Network, when they were talking about this series, and they had listened to the part one last week, uh, Pastor... uh, uh, Chamberlain chimed in, he doesn't hardly ever talk on this podcast, uh, but he chimed in, he said, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm so against Calvinism, I'm, I won't even plant tulips in my garden, <laughs> he said, which I thought was funny. Uh, but anyway, um, so we want to work our way through this system, but to uh, review, and I won't take the time to go back and rehash everything from last week. But I want you to to know my heart on this that we're trying to be gracious, uh, respectful, and most importantly, accurate in how we describe the Calvinistic view. One of the the greatest blessings to me in my journey of studying and, and going through the educational process was during the time in my Ph.D. studies when I was sitting under the mentorship of Dr. Mike Stallard, who remains a dear friend to this time, And he really challenged me for seven years in that study when critiquing theological viewpoints to make absolutely sure that you're fair to the other perspective. It's so easy to create straw men and then knock them down, right? And uh, I don't want people doing that to me. And I've experienced it a lot where people read one little sentence or something or hear one little comment and they build a whole erroneous view that allegedly I hold, and then they proceed to tear it down. And if I could ever talk to those people, I would say, you know, I agree. You're right. Nope. You know, that's wrong. But I don't believe that. <laughs> so, you know, we actually agree. So I've really uh, learned in the 15 or so years uh, since I graduated from that school to, to really make an effort to do it. doesn't mean I'm always successful. Look, we're all human. Sometimes you get animated, you get perturbed, and you, you tend to slip into a little bit more ungracious critiques of certain people or viewpoints. But I can promise you uh, having you know, spent so many years working on that book and studying this that uh, that's not what I'm doing here and hopefully you'll sense that. Uh, so that's why for each point we're going to take the time to really let them define what they mean by each of these five points. And then we're going to say, okay, what does the Bible say in our perspective? Of course, they think the Bible supports their view, but I'm going to bring up a lot of relevant passages and it'll ask you to draw your own conclusion. Does the Bible really support their viewpoint or or the viewpoint that I'm suggesting, um, the grace or dispensational viewpoint? So Calvinism is, uh, by and large, a system of theology that relates to the doctrine of salvation. So you'll notice in these five points, they don't say anything about the return of Christ, the rapture, the second coming. They're not talking here about you know anything related to other theological topics. It's laser focused on the salvation of man, the eternal salvation of man. And so uh, in that sense, a person can be Calvinistic in their view of the gospel, but they can be Premillennial in their view of the end times or pre-tribulational in their view of the end times and so forth. Someone asked me, I think it was last week after the class, uh, what about John MacArthur? Well, we're going to talk a lot about John MacArthur because he's a leading Calvinist of our day, as I mentioned last week. But he is dispensational in his view of the future uh, for Israel and the church, the distinction between the two, the pre-tribulational rapture. Seven-year tribulation, second coming of Christ, literal earthly millennium. He's dispensational in that regard, but he's a 12-point Calvinist when it comes to Calvinism. Uh, And so he himself refers to himself, uh, and you may have heard him say this or seen it in his writings, as a leaky dispensationalist. Now, why would he call himself a leaky dispensationalist? Because he knows that historically the dispensational understanding of Scripture meaning the literal grammatical historical view of of how to interpret the bible is opposed to calvinism and would not accept the calvinistic view of salvation so he's got a foot in both camps so acknowledging the anomaly that that is he says well i'm a, a bit of a leaky dispensationalist in other words i'm dispensational in everything except my soteriology which is the doctrine of salvation so he says i'm dispensational in everything but my understanding of salvation so in his mind that 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 he characterizes that as being leaky. Um, But as we said last week, uh, we don't want to make the theological system the determining factor in whether a a viewpoint is accurate or not. In other words, I'm an unashamed dispensationalist and a consistent one, but uh, I'm not going to prove my theological and doctrinal points by saying See, this is what the dispensational manual says, right? I'm going to say I believe this because the Bible says so as best I can. So to a large extent, you know, the fact that MacArthur says he's a leaky dispensationalist is sort of beside the point. What we really want to strive for in this study is, as best we can, what does the Bible say? And as expected, I've already gotten several emails uh, over the course of the past week. Um, Thankfully, none of them, particularly ugly, which I use, usually get some from Calvinists, uh, these were all gracious and, uh, you know, respectful, but saying, you know, expressing their disdain that after one lesson, you know, which they've listened to, uh, you know, how wrong I am and how they're discouraged that I've got this whole thing wrong. And so in all of them, I responded graciously and just said, I appreciate your input. Uh, encourage you to listen to the whole series and, you know, draw conclusions. Uh, you know, if, if you feel, you know, that this is wrong, that's that's entirely up to you. So it's something like that eh, in each case. Um, so, uh, so the five points of Calvinism, I'm going to go through them first, just so you kind of have a roadmap of where we're going, and then we're going to start with number one tonight. But the five points are, again, that acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, okay? Those are the five points, as we talked about last week when we talked about the history of it, that came out of the Synod of Dort and sort of the summary uh, conclusions, if you will, of each of of those uh, areas uh, of consideration. Man's depravity, the the issue of election, uh, the atonement, for whom did Christ die, uh, and then, of course, can a person of his own will believe the gospel? And can that person reject the gospel? Or does God force you to believe it? That's the, the issue. Uh, and then perseverance of the saints, which is easily, without question, the most misunderstood of the five points of Calvinism. I can't tell you how many Calvinists I've talked to over the years. When I ask them, do you believe in perseverance of the saints? They go, of course I believe in eternal security. And I go, what's that got to do with perseverance of the saints because that's not what Senator of dort taught that's not what calvinists teach when they t- teach about perseverance of the saints has no there, there may be somewhat correlation between the two but there's they're not synonymous perseverance of the saints is not eternal security as we shall see in their own words okay so uh it's the same thing i get run across when i talk about uh to catholics you know who who i say uh uh, what, what is Immaculate Conception? And they say, oh, of course, it's the birth of Christ. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not. Immaculate Conception is the birth of Mary, that Mary was born of a virgin. That's what the Catholic doctrine of Immaculate Conception means. It has nothing to do with Christ. It's that Mary is divine because Mary was born in, of a virgin without sin. Uh, so a lot of people, I think, have latched on to misunderstandings about uh, all of these, really, but without question, the fifth one, is the one that is the most misunderstood. So we'll have to wait a while till we get to that one. Um, but anyway, one more point about these five points, just in a summary statement. The most disputed of the five. Anybody know which one it is? Limited. Exactly, limited atonement. As I mentioned last week, uh, you know, for since the 1500s. So what is that? 500 years now, 600 years. Um, people have tended to divide all of Christianity into Calvinism or Arminianism as if those were the only two options. And because those were the only two options, or so it was thought, uh, many people could not accept the third point of Calvinism, which is that Christ only died and shed his blood for the elect, not for the sins of the whole world, just for the ones God chose. And many people rightly rejected that. But yet, they said they didn't want to be called an Arminian you know, because that's works-based salvation. You can lose it. You have to earn it. God can take it away, all those things. So they said, I don't want to be an Arminian, but I certainly don't believe Christ only died for the elect. I think he died for everyone. So I'm just going to call myself a four-point Calvinist, right? That, that, and that's where that phrase comes from. So if you ever hear uh, reference in, in your discussions or podcasts or videos or in books that you read to someone saying four-point Calvinism, that means that they are rejecting the third point, limited atonement. So of the five points, clearly the most disputed uh, is limited atonement. Uh, the most misunderstood is perseverance. Uh, but as we shall see, and I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out there, uh, I don't believe in any of the five the way they define them. And, I, you know, it will be interesting to see your conclusions as you see uh, what they say. So, any preliminary questions or comments or thoughts that come to mind? Yeah. I kind of had a thought last week when you were going through the, uh, I think it's what the world was going on. You were saying how the two-party system in America is kind of—it's a false paradigm. I kind of think this Calvinism versus Armenian thing is a false paradigm too, because I know at our old church they had this continuum. They had Calvinism on one side and Armenianism on the other side, and you'd find some place in the middle. The more I think about it. Yeah, so her comment is, uh, I've made the comment in other context about how the two-party system is really a false left-right paradigm, you know, that it's really two sides of the same street kind of heading in the same direction. And by the way, that I make that point, I think, pretty clearly without dispute based on historical writings in spirit of the antichrist there's a whole section on the false right left left left, right paradigm and i go back to the council on foreign relations and how they decided to create this system where that you know both sides were controlled but yet you can make people feel like they have a voice on the right and on the left but yet nothing ever changes but anyway so her comment is that in the realm of theology it seems like arminianism and calvinism is a is a kind of a false paradigm. And yeah, that's exactly my point, is that there? it's not the only option. And so I last week, I don't have it on this week's presentation, but I created actually just for this study last week, trying to improve it and make it more clear, a slide if you recall uh, that I called the sovereignty free will continuum. And I talked about how on the one extreme was emphasizing sovereignty, and that's Calvinism. And on the other extreme of the continuum is emphasizing free will, that's Arminianism. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that you should just sort of run up and down the continuum and decide what you feel most comfortable with and just land there. I'm suggesting that the proper biblical approach is balanced, or, or what I call biblicism. So you got Arminianism, or I guess I, I can't remember which side I had which on, but anyway, on one side was Calvinism, the other side is Arminianism, and the middle is biblicism. I'm not, don't misunderstand and think that I'm suggesting that Calvinists are anti-biblical and Arminians are anti-biblical, but there's some great men and women of, of the faith on both ends of the spectrum. I just think they're wrong, and I think the best data from the Bible is, is something other than Arminianism or Calvinism. Does that make sense? Okay, Fred. Yeah, uh,
1: related to that, and last week I had this question on well, These are both heresies. The isms are, are heresies. So was that a time of apostasy? And seems like, well, what was the rest of the church doing? Like? Was this taken over? Was this everybody was either one or the other, or what was
0: going on? So
1: historically with the church.
0: So to repeat the question, the comment is these are both heresies, and so really, what was going on? during that time where was the church where were the watchmen basically is that essentially what you're saying so so it's interesting that you bring up that word so it took 10 minutes into the second session for the the h word to rear its head Um, it's a term that we have to define what we mean by heresy so first of all in church history and i've talked about this a lot in church history the term heresy had a technical meaning that that was that someone had abandoned some of the standards of orthodoxy, such as the inerrancy of scripture or the virgin birth or the deity of Christ, and they were, would be labeled a heretic and in many cases, you know, killed because of that. So that's the sort of the historical meaning of heretic or heresy. Um, in a more general or broader sense, you know, heresy would be someone who denies the fundamentals of scripture. So I'm comfortable declaring anyone who's promoting, let me rephrase that. I'm comfortable declaring any view that is contrary to the clear, accurate teaching of the gospel of grace, heretical, that view. But I'm a little less comfortable calling someone who's promoting that view heretical. And here's why. And believe me, those of you who know me know I'm not afraid to be blunt and call a spade a spade. So it's not that I'm mealy-mouthed. But let's just be honest. There are people out there who, because of the influence of Calvinism and other teachers, have adopted what I believe to be a wrong understanding of the gospel. And they're not... That's not good. That's not right. We hope that they will look at the Scripture and rethink their view. But to classify them as heretics would be, I think, a bridge too far because they, they... they mean well. They've just—they're not connecting the dots of Scripture accurately. Um, so, you know, I over the years have softened a little bit in terms of how harshly I want to judge it. I'm not afraid to say that the view itself is heretical. Any view that is contrary to the grace of God and the teaching of the freeness of salvation—I mean, if it's if it's biblically wrong, it's, it's wrong. I mean, let's call it what it is. But I I understand that there are multiple reasons why people might hold that view. They have never thought about it. I mean, I can't tell you how many people through the years I've come across who adopted what's more commonly called a lordship salvation view. I got an email today, I haven't responded to it, from someone who wants to know the connection between Calvinism and lordship salvation. Well, lordship salvation is just a colloquial name for the conclusions of Calvinism. So, And we, we'll probably get into that in this series. But hold that thought for just one second. So, you know, anybody who might hold to lordship salvation or the Calvinist view of the gospel might do so for a variety of reasons. Maybe they've just never studied it. They just assumed it was true. Well, my preacher said it. It must be true, right? And I want to I leave open the room for people like that to, to think through it biblically and change their view. And if we say you're a heretic, well, that, that kind of might lead them astray at the same time there are absolutely on the other extreme rabid i mean dogmatic calvinists that are just that that don't that are not afraid to call dispensationalists heretics by any stretch <laughs> uh, and, and and i can give you a lot of examples of that but uh, in my getting the gospel wrong book i talk about one who's so embraced and is so passionate about the calvinist paradigm that he says when a person get saved you should put them on probation for six months not baptize them for at least six months because if during that first six months they ended up committing any big sins or sort of going a few days without really living for christ well then that proves they're not really saved and that's i mean to me that that is a heretic anybody that would teach that that view so i just i think we need to be uh you know, as gracious as we can, but don't read that as being soft. The view itself is heretical. Any view that is contrary to the grace of God in Scripture is heretical. Uh, yeah, uh, actually Nick first and then you.
1: Uh, Genesis 4-6. I would think that would take the window out of the sails of a Calvinist where God speaks to Cain. I mean like a, like a dear father, and says, why are you cast down? If you do right, would you not? accepted if you do wrong choice is 100% given
0: to Cain. oh yeah so he's talking about one of many examples and we're going to get to that when we talk about free will um, when God says you know why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin lies at the door clearly implying the choice um, yeah there's no question that it was a bona fide choice when God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said don't eat from that tree if they didn't have a choice, why did God tell them that? So, you know, we create this race of automatons that can't do anything, that only do what God ordained that they do. So, again, to a Calvinist, it's it's very uh, unacceptable for us to sit here and espouse the doctrine of free will and the doctrine of sovereignty. That makes them very uncomfortable because in their mind it's got to all come together into one sort of turnkey system where everything makes sense. To, to me, and I think on the testimony of Scripture, as we're going to see, the Bible teaches a lot of things that to the human mind seem irreconcilable. Yet we have to accept them because the Bible teaches them. So uh, the, the, the fundamental issue is not what makes sense. The issue is what does the Bible say? Uh, now, the Bible obviously is intended to be understood and it, it is understandable, but that doesn't mean its conclusions will always make sense to us. So, yeah, there are a lot of examples where clearly, you know, people have a choice. Jesus said to Jerusalem the day before he was arrested in the garden, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chickens. But what? Anybody know the rest of the verse? You were not willing. <laughs> they had a choice, <laughs> Right. He didn't say how long I how often I long to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers you gathers her chicks, but God would not let you. He didn't say that, no. Uh, yeah.
1: So I wasn't here last week, but I listened to your podcast. And I also listened to a, an Andy Woods podcast recently, um, contrasting God's sovereignty versus man's free will. God's sovereignty being on the Calvinist side, man's free will being on the Arminian side. And if I understood you right, and I think you just touched on it again, the Bible teaches both. And it's the extreme of one or another that is the the danger. That's what A- A-
0: saying. Absol- yeah. Absolutely. What did you say? So that's what I think was saying, too. Yeah. No, and that's exactly, you almost took the words out of my mouth from last week. And that's why I spent the beginning of the session talking about that paradigm and talking about balance. And I said, if you spend all your time over here obsessing about sovereignty, then you you make man impotent. It's like every day you're like, what should I do? You know, should I brush my teeth? I don't know. Does God want me to brush my teeth? You know, should I, What? what you know, it, you're totally passive and just this, as I said, automaton. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like. The old joke: What does the Calvinist say after he falls down the stairs? Glad that's over. I'm glad that's over. I mean, what else can he say, right? I mean, you yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so, but at the same time, it's about balance, as you so accurately said. If you camp out over here in the free will side, then you make God impotent, and it's like I can, I control everything. I, you know, there's no. Uh, sovereignty involved and I can save myself, I can unsave myself, you know, so forth and so on. So the Bible teaches both.
1: And that balance is not in here. No. My, my finite human mind cannot reconcile one and the other that seem to be opposite.
0: No, they can't. And that's the verse that, you know, we looked at last week, Romans 11, you know, the uh, Uh, how unsearchable are his ways and his judgments past finding out i think i just completely butchered that Uh, that's like the niv version or something but anyway uh oh oh the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out and that's not just a proof you know Example of sort of out-of-context proof texting. The whole context, this is at the end of chapter 11, and for the past three chapters, Paul has talked about God's sovereignty in electing the nation of Israel and and rejecting, you know, Esau. So, you know, the, the principle is there that, look, I, you know, who are you to say to the potter? You know, that, that kind of an argument. And so, even though it's not talking about individual election, the principle is true that we can't understand how... God's sovereignty reigns, and yet at the same time, he holds mankind responsible for his own actions, right? So, but you're, you're exactly right. We, we've got to keep that balance, um, and, and, and there's much more to Calvinism than just the sovereignty-free will debate. That's what everybody thinks of first is election, right, which we won't even get to till the second point. Um, but on that point, election, I mean, uh, sovereignty and free will... Uh, my view is what's called the biblical antinomy. One of the leading proponents of this view who died not too long ago, who was a good friend and mentor of mine, I worked with him many times, was Norm Geisler. And uh, his book was kind of the preeminent book on that called Chosen But Free. By the way, I, I thought about this a couple of days ago. I left him off of my list of thir- top 30 dispensational scholars. But he's got to be in the top 30 for sure. I don't know who how I... His name escaped me, but there's just so many, it's hard to narrow it down to 30. But anyway, Chosen But Free is the name of his book, and as you can tell by the title, it's sort of basically explaining biblically how we can be chosen, yet free, to believe the gospel or not. Can I make sense of that? Not any more than I can make sense of a virgin having a child, or the entire world stopping spinning for a full day in Joshua's day, or hour, whatever it was, in Joshua's day, right? so uh, or the, the hypostatic union or the trinity or you go on and on so anyway it's the it's a biblical antinomy anti meaning against namos, the greek word for law so against the law not meaning the moral law but against the natural laws you know so how can something be two but one you know in the case of christ's hypostatic union how can god be three but one how can man be free but god be sovereign? It's an antinomy, but we accept it. It's
1: kind of like the thermos. You put hot things in, it keeps it hot. You put cold things in, it keeps it cold. How do it know?
0: How, how does it know? How does that thermos know whether it's hot or it's cold? I don't know. That's a good analogy. Uh, but something tells me people smarter than me could, could have a satisfying answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anybody else? Did I see another hand? Or Yeah, back here and then Gary. Norm, Norm, or Norman is probably what the title, the author's title is. Geisler, G-E-I-S-L-E-R. Yeah, Norm Geisler. Yep. See, great minds think alike. Yep. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a great book on that, and I'll try to, as I, as they come to my mind on each of these points, give you some resources that go into much more detail on each point than we're going to you know necessarily do although i think it's we're going to go into enough detail that it makes the case Um, any other questions all right great job by the way this is what i was kind of hoping for last week so you know feel free to ask questions make comments you know it's the way people learn and i get comments all the time from people watching the videos or live streaming that say uh, they really appreciate the questions uh, and uh, obviously our, our audio setup is not such that we can record for the video the questions, but I always try to uh, repeat the questions so that people listening can, can uh, benefit from it. All right, so the first point then is total depravity. So I'm going to tell you what Calvinism teaches and what they mean by this phrase, and then I'm going to show you in their own words... Uh, that I'm accurate, that I'm not putting words in their mouth. So Calvinism, by total depravity, teaches that man is totally incapable of receiving the gift of salvation. We are dead, and by dead, Ephesians 2.1, they mean that dead people can't do anything, even believe. In fact, one of their big mantras was dead men can't believe. Is, I shouldn't say was, is. Uh, you'll hear that all the time. When I say, you know, uh, you know, people, unsaved people can believe the gospel and be saved, they'll immediately say, dead men can't believe. How is that possible? And we're just talking past each other. And it all comes down to how you define dead, right? Yes, Ephesians 2.1 says, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. What does that mean? They teach it means that you do not have the ability to believe the gospel. Man is not able to respond to the grace of God. Man has no ability to come to Christ. Man cannot choose to come to Christ. God must overpower man and force him to turn to Christ through no volition of his own. Man does not have the ability to respond to the gospel or come to Christ. Man cannot choose to trust in Christ. God must force him to come to him. Now, they don't like it when I use the term force. They'll say, God doesn't force, he compels. Well, can man resist it? Is there any way that if God wants you to believe the gospel, you could not do it? And they say, no. Okay. Well, then that's the textbook definition of force. If I force you to do something, it means you have no power to do anything other than that. And that's their view, that if you are elect, you will, by God's compulsion, believe the gospel. And that's not what saves you, as we're going to see in their own words. You're not saved because you expressed faith. Your expression of faith is an involuntary response to the fact that you were already saved. Yeah.
1: How, is that, how
0: does the conviction of the spirit uh, relate to this? How does the conviction of the spirit relate to this? So they again believe, and we're going to get to this in more detail. But they believe that regeneration, I mean being born again, what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about, uh, and what Titus three five, the theme verse for our ministry, talks about. Um, they believe that happens first, and you have no. Uh, relationship to it or connection to it at all you just are walking along all of a sudden you become regenerated and then having been regenerated you under compulsion and involuntarily express faith so faith is the involuntary response to regeneration so that's how they see the role of the holy spirit in the conversion experience we believe the holy spirit draws we're going to look at that verse and convicts the world, as Jesus said in the upper room, of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but, he, but, but it's our faith that results in regeneration. So the big crux of the matter is, to a Calvinist, uh, regeneration precedes faith, and faith is the involuntary response to regeneration. We believe the Bible teaches that faith is the instrumental cause of regeneration. See the difference? It's which comes first? So you are born again because you believed. You don't believe because you're born again, All right? And, and again, we're gonna go through those. But man cannot decide to come to Christ, just like the quote you just showed me before class tonight. Uh, God must make him come to him. And then, as I just said, faith according to Calvinism is an involuntary response that occurs completely outside of the consciousness of the individual. You just, you have no control over it. If you're elect, you're gonna believe the gospel because you're elect you know so with that sort of summary let's let them speak for themselves here's macarthur unredeemed sinners are totally depraved agree of course we're going to see what they mean by that in a second that is they're spiritually dead agreed bible's pretty clear on that ephesians 2 1 we're born dead in our trespasses and sin but notice what he says unable to respond to or please god that just comes out of nowhere. I mean, The first two are clear biblical teachings. But then he extrapolates from that, that, flat, that third phrase. Where in the world does the Bible say spiritual deadness means you are unable to respond to or please God? Where does it say that? We're going to look at some verses a little bit later. Here's another one. Because of human depravity, there is nothing in fall, a fallen reprobate sinner that is capable of responding in faith again just because they declare it doesn't make it true we're going to with each of these points after we go through let them speak we're going to say what does the bible say Uh, here's another macarthur quote unredeemed sinners are therefore incapable of understanding spiritual truth i disagree with that completely can an unbeliever uh, comprehend the gospel. Can an unbeliever understand when I say to them, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins and is the only hope of salvation if you'll trust him for it? To a Calvinist, they believe what I just said sounds like utter gibberish to an unbeliever. They cannot comprehend it. I disagree. I think they can comprehend it. The question is, do they believe it? Do they believe it? Yeah.
1: When he's talking about unredeemed sinners, could he be talking about uh, man prior to his being drawn by God?
0: No, he's he enabled? he's um, he, he's not enabled. Okay, that's a Calvinistic view. Okay. Um, but no, he's talking about all unbelievers. That until God regenerates you, you cannot respond. the gospel and once God regenerates you you are forced to respond to the gospel you don't have a choice
1: didn't Christ say no one can come to God unless
0: he's drawn absolutely that's the gospel remember Paul said the God so in case that didn't pick up the microphone didn't Christ say no one can come to me unless the father draws him absolutely that's the gospel Paul says the gospel is the power of God to salvation to whoever believes it so if a person never hears the gospel they're not going to be drawn to the Lord.
1: Isn't that the switch, though? That no. Allows them to be God. They're drawn,
0: or make that There, a, there is a, choice? there is a vast difference between drawing someone and dragging someone. Okay. Right. So I can, I can uh, draw someone by, and the Spirit of God draws people by preaching the gospel. Uh, and and by the way, that's why in Romans. Uh, let me just finish this thought because it's—I think it's pretty important. In Romans 10, Paul says, uh, "How shall they believe in whom in him of whom they have not heard?" Romans 10:14. And shall how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring good tidings of who bring glad tidings of good things, Isaiah 52, 7. And then Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. And he goes on to say in the next verse, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So absolutely the spirit of God, Jesus tells us this, is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The gospel must be proclaimed. That's the reason people who've never heard the gospel are going to be in hell. You don't get a pass because you've never heard the gospel. You're... You need to be born again you're lost you haven't believed the gospel you're going to hell but the bible tells us in romans 1 that if you respond to general revelation and recognize that there's a god god will then respond to that by sending special revelation specifically the gospel so nobody's without excuse god has made himself known to the whole world through general revelation but general revelation is not sufficient to save the one and only means of salvation is believing the gospel and you can't believe something you've never heard. So that's Paul's whole point in Romans 10. How shall they believe in him, of whom, in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So when the gospel is proclaimed, that's the reason I proclaim it as often as much as I can in every message and in every book, because it is the power of God to salvation, and I want the Spirit of God to have the opportunity to convict that person in that moment so that they'll hear. Now, some people will hear the gospel a thousand times and never believe. Some people hear it the first time they hear it. They believe it. Some people, anywhere in between. But you can't be saved unless you believe the gospel. But drawing people is completely different from coercing or compelling them forcing them to come.
1: But once they're drawn, then at that moment, then they have the free choice.
0: Absolutely. That's my view. That's what I think the Bible teaches. And we see... exactly.
1: that, they couldn't choose.
0: I mean, that's like saying, can I answer the math problem before you tell me the problem?
1: I mean, they're being uh, true to their nature. Their nature is dead.
0: Well, we're going to define what dead means in Scripture here in a moment if we get to it tonight, (laughs) which we may not, which is fine. But no, I don't believe a person prior to hearing the gospel is incapable of believing. They still have that capacity. They just don't know what to believe in because they've never heard it. So it'd be like me saying, do you believe? What's your first question going to be? What? Now, because I haven't told you what my question is about, does that mean it's impossible for you to functionally express belief? No, you, you could, you just need to know what, and then you'll decide, do I believe it or not? So, Dead doesn't mean you can't believe. You know, dead, as we're going to see, means separate from God. Uh, And that's true all across Scripture, the word dead. There are five different kinds of death that I'm going to talk about in Scripture. They all mean separate. Um, So, uh, but the point is, people often point to that verse, and we're going to look at it in greater detail in John 6. uh, you uh, You know, I will draw... Man, by the way, it's the same word that Jesus used when he said, If I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. So if draw means you have no choice, you will absolutely believe the gospel because the Spirit is drawing you, how come everybody's not saved? Jesus said, I'll draw all men. Because you have free choice. Exactly. Exactly. So he's drawing all men. I don't see it that way. Drawing is not the switch. The switch that causes you to pass from death to life is faith. The Bible says that again and again. John 8, 24. If you believe in me, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment in that moment. So if you want to speak of the analogy of a switch, and I know all analogies are limited, so I'm not trying to make a big deal out of it. But if you're talking about the, the, the precise punctiliar moment in time when someone goes from being lost in sin such that if they died they'd be in hell to being saved in christ such that if they died they'd go to heaven that switch is faith 160 times the new testament says that so and that's a choice, that's a choice. you can either believe or you can reject uh, and if it weren't a choice then again we, we've got all sorts of issues so but again don't just believe it because i'm saying it i, I we're get we're we're we want to make the case as we go through it. But yeah. But I'm sure you're going to come to this,
1: but does a Calvinist
0: have a mechanism for an unbelieving human to become a believer? Or is there no hope? Does a Calvinist have a mechanism for an unbelieving person to become a believer? Yeah, God. That, that's exactly what we're going to go through is that for them it's not faith faith doesn't get them saved god saves them yeah yeah like i said last week what's the Calvinist favorite grocery store the pick and save you know so um by the way oh i wish i have remembered this i i won't it's bad formed for me to be looking up a text while we're reviewing but I got a uh, Armenian grocery store one too I'll have to look it up uh, my daughter sent it to me um, so so that's the key it's 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 off I often call the Calvinist scheme the blame it on God scheme because God does it all everything so you know if you know because it's a lockstep system if you are living in a in, in carnality then God would never cause you to live in carnality. And because God does it all, you can't possibly be elect. So they don't have a category for a believer who's living in carnality. Or an unbeliever who might be roaming the earth, curious about something, and, and seek to desire more about it. Right. So, again, in their mind, the determinative factor is God's election, which is why when we get to uh, the third point, the disputed point, lim- the, the most widely disputed point, they're all disputed in my view, uh, limited atonement, they're going to say Christ only died for the elect, because it's the atonement that saves. The atonement actually secures salvation, and then God says, I pick you, By, because of the atonement which saved you, you're regenerated, and then involuntarily you express faith. Again, it's called in theological terms, Going back to the Latin, it's called the Ordo Salutis. Ordo Salutis, meaning the order of salvation. They believe regeneration precedes faith and is the cause of faith. We believe it the other way around. Faith precedes regeneration and is the cause of regeneration. And that's what the Bible, I believe, teaches. So, yeah, Sally. Sally. Why would Jesus say go in all the world and preach the gospel if it was already decided uh, who was saved and who was not? Calvinists obviously believe in this tension between you know what we do on earth and what we're told to do, and and what actually happens. And In fact, that's why I used the illustration last week of the friend of mine. It might have been after the class, but who said. After he and I had witnessed to a gal for several days at a restaurant, going back to that restaurant every day, and she had not expressed come to the point of expressing faith, he as we walked away that final day said, "Well, obviously she was an elect." So they're not, and in fact, Spurgeon was a great evangelist. So they they believe in the event most of them, some of them don't. The real extreme hyper Calvinists they have no use for evangelism, but. Most do, and they, they believe that somehow God uses that, but it doesn't save people. It sort of uh, identifies who is saved in their mind. So a Calvinist would never say in an evangelistic enterprise, as we often do when you're sharing Christ with someone, God loves you and sent his son to die for you. They would never say that.
1: So it was just to seek out the
0: chosen. Exactly, just to seek out the chosen. So and and I'm not putting words in their mouth. You talk to a, a studied, you know, well-studied Calvinist who really understands what they're teaching, and you ask them when you're re- when you're going to share Christ with someone, share the gospel. Would you begin by saying God loves you and sent His Son to die for you? And they say, No, I can't. I can't say that because I don't know if God's Son died for them or not. He only died for the elect, and I don't know if they're elect. Now, once they believe the gospel, that proves they're elect. They didn't have a choice in the matter. That's just God's way of sort of identifying them. Oh, they must have been elect. So so they don't, so it's a totally different concept. They don't, like, you know, remember when Jesus in Luke 15 repeatedly said, you know, the angels in heaven rejoice. There's more rejoicing among the angels over one sinner who repents, meaning changes his mind about Christ and grace, than there is over 99 who don't, who think they need no repentance. They don't need to change their mind, right? Um. For them, it's not so much a rejoicing that this person has expressed faith in Christ. It's, it's, it's almost like a scavenger hunt where they rejoice that, yeah, they rejoice that this person is going to heaven and now we know that, but it's not that they didn't get to that point because they expressed faith. It's just that God now has sort of, you know, like every elect person has a big E painted on their forehead, but it's covered over with you know, skin-colored, what, what is the Not mascara, but whatever you put on your face. Foundation. To, foundation, thank you. And then as soon as they are identified as elect, that's wiped away and everybody in the Calvinist realm says, oh, great, we're so glad that you're one of us, right? That's kind of the mentality. Uh, well, I mean... Uh, no, they're not. The question is, are they secure? No, they're not. And we're going to get to that when we get to the fifth point. Uh, but they can't have uh, assurance is really the technical term. They, they're secure if they believe the gospel. But unfortunately, because of their theology, they really can't be sure. They won't know if, if they're elect until they live out their lives persevering to the end of their death till they die in good works. And uh, so let me just... It'd get to a, a couple more slides here to get to a stopping point. Did someone else have a question back in the back? Or Nick? Or? Yeah. Well, I, I just feel like it's heartbreaking because it negates the idea of God
1: so loving the world that He gave His
0: one and only Son that whoever believes. Yeah. Have well, I'm going to so show... I know, uh, the comment is about God so over the world that he gave his only begotten son, John three 16. Uh, I'm going to show you, when we get to that point, in their own writings where they say world means the elect, not the whole world. I have another quick yeah, question. oh sure, yeah. Yeah, call, okay. whom he called, I'm thinking of Romans 8, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. But uh, it's probably the same in the context you're talking about. But yeah, no, I mean, clearly, we the Spirit of God is calling people to salvation. That's the universal call. The Bible ends in Revelation 21. Uh, I mean, not literally ends, but at the very end of Revelation in chapter 21. Whosoever will let him come, drink of the water of life freely. So, and I mentioned one Sunday in in our in my message on uh, the Crimson Thread in Matthew 11. Uh, come, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Uh, again and again, if I be lifted up, I will draw men to me. Well, and what about the verse that says, unless
1: you become like these little
0: children? Yeah, you know, and have faith. And like uh, that's mm-hmm. the point, yeah. So... Yeah, you know the the issue here about drawing. It's great that this came up, you know, early on, and we're going to dive into it in much greater detail. But you know, if you think about, uh, you know, I grew up hunting, and in Texas, you can have deer uh, corn feeders. You know, it's really not much like hunting; it's more like killing. But anyway, uh, uh, what's that? Harvesting? Yeah, <laughs> harvesting. Thank you. That's the technical term for it. Um, but if I put a corn feeder up you know, beside a or near a brook of rippling fresh water, and I'm trying to draw the deer in, is that the same thing as me going out and physically lassoing a big fat doe and dragging her up and say, You eat that corn. No, I'm drawing her. I'm trying to say, Look, this is good, come eat it. Now it's a bad analogy because (laughs) in one case the result is eternity in heaven. The other case, it's some good sausage, you know. But uh, but anyway, that's my point about drawing, right? You you know, drawing someone is not dragging them. It's just not. So I'm completely fine with the Holy Spirit drawing people to faith. That's not the same as forcing them, right? So, so back to the dead men can't believe. This originates with Spurgeon. Dead men cannot believe, but the quickened, those regenerated, can't uh just disagree and we're going to talk about that rc sproul dead men do not cooperate with grace unless regeneration takes place first there is no possibility of faith i mean this could not be more clear i mean we're not putting words in their mouth this is the real crux of uh the matter Uh, and then uh here's macarthur every aspect of salvation including the sinner's faith is done for us so you didn't believe the gospel. God did it for you. Wow. That's what they say. Yeah. So like on the, the
1: previous slide, RC
0: school, where, where do they point to Scripture for that? Or do
1: they just make it up?
0: Make well, it up? passages like, "Unless no one can come to me unless the Father draw him. And then they redefine what draw means. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we're going to get into that, in, again, in their own words when we get to that verse.
1: Corinthians 5, verse 17.
0: If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. O- old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Right. But that's certainly true spiritually. If you're born again, you are in Christ positionally, which, by the way, is a unique blessing of the present church age. Old Testament saints were not in Christ. It's one of the many blessings of this age. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, we're a new creation.
1: You brought up Romans Mm eight, and and in Romans eight, Paul talks about the flesh, and the flesh is can only be with the flesh because it's not in Christ.
0: Yeah, so Paul's contrasting in Romans chapter six through eight, he's talking about the believer and this ongoing struggle with sin. So if you look at Romans as the great magnum opus of the Apostle Paul and its doctrinal treatise, chapters one through three. We're all dirty, rotten, filthy sinners on the road to hell with no hope. And if you stop reading Romans after the third chapter, you'd be the most depressed person on earth. Four and five, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has the answer. Six through eight, now that you're saved, what does the new life in Christ look like? Old man, new man, flesh, spirit, you know, lusting against one another, all of that stuff. Chapter seven, he describes that ongoing struggle now that he's a believer when the spirit is the new man is leading him to live for Christ but the old man is still tugging and saying look at the apple and how shiny it is six through eight nine through eleven what about Israel where do they play in all of this twelve to sixteen practical exhortations about life in the church and interacting with other you know human elements and so forth so in chapter eight yeah he's definitely saying you know if you if you live according to the flesh you'll die if you live according to spirit, you'll live. I mean, it's pretty clear. It's the same thing that uh, James says when he says sin when it's full grown brings forth death. Uh, John in First John says uh, there's sin that leads to death. See, sin's an equal opportunity killer, and it's also an indiscriminate killer. It doesn't care whether you're a believer or not. A believer who continues to sin is, oh, and, and continues that path is likely to die. And an unbeliever who continues down the path of sin is going to die, but that doesn't—that's what Second Corinthians 5:17 is all about. Is it doesn't change our identity. So yes, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have—all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I got there eventually. You guys were about to. Correct me. Feel free anytime. I mean, my kids do it, so why shouldn't you? Um, well,
1: this 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 uh, talk brings us into the concept of total depravity,
0: that, Which is what we're in the section we're in right now.
1: The, the depravity of man when he first—I mean, wasn't it David that said, "You know, you knew me before uh, I was even in my mother's womb." And which talks, speaks of the sovereignty of God. Yeah. And um, yet we're born in sin and we're with a hard heart and we can't be make that choice until we're wrong. That's the chicken and egg thing.
0: Well, so again, it's probably semantics, but yeah. I think we have the capability of making a choice, but we have to be Exposed to the choice. Aren't you true to your nature,
1: though? If your nature is dead and sinful, and yeah, our new nature is still. What, still,
0: what, what does do "dead" know? mean? Where does "dead" mean? Show, show me in Scripture where "dead" ever means incapable of expressing faith. Well, it doesn't. Let <laughs> I me mean, save you some time. So <laughs> I'm going to define. I'm going to define "dead" in, in as we go through this. And you know, the only downside of doing this over weeks and weeks is that you know i feel like sometimes we kind of leave you hanging and 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 i don't get to like a good lawyer make the case you know extensively but that's fine that it's very helpful to do well, it this way
1: was a bad word. hardness of heart
0: yeah so again it's the gospel that's the power of god to salvation anyone who is confronted with the gospel has the ability to believe it or reject it obviously If someone hasn't heard the gospel, as we just read in Romans 10, it's not possible for them to believe something they've never heard. But once you've heard the gospel, it is the power of God to salvation. That's not where Paul stops. I'm thinking here of Romans 1.16. So let me say it again. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. What comes next? For everyone who what? believes. So the gospel doesn't force you to get saved. The gospel doesn't automatically make you. You don't have to just hear the gospel and boom, now you're saved. It becomes the power of God to salvation only when you believe it. So uh, again, I just—it's probably semantics—but I wouldn't say that, you know, a person who's unsaved cannot believe the gospel. I just there's just too much scriptural evidence to the contrary. And by the way, we're going next week. We're going to shift into what does the Bible say. And I'll try to uh, support the assertions that I'm making through scripture. Um, but uh, I, I do want to close out with two more slides before we finish. But I don't want to stifle anybody. I think there were a couple of other hands. Uh, over. Was there? Yeah. Well, the, the Sproul
1: slide, mm-hmm. where he talks about the regeneration comes and then the possibility of faith. So, is that an A B phrase? Like, if A happens, B will definitely happen? Yes, yes. Or the other question is, if you're regenerated, do you know that? Or are there a bunch of people walking around that are regenerated? You don't people? know have no it. Idea.
0: Been regenerated. You don't. And that's the other thing. Okay. So, this is a really astute uh, observation and, and question. And I'm guessing it's probably on other people's minds, too. So she was commenting about this quote from Sproul. Unless regeneration takes place first, there's no possibility of faith. And she said, so is this an A-B thing? If regeneration happens, faith will follow. Absolutely. And that's the fourth point of Calvinism, irresistible, which we'll get to. Um, but you're right. If you t- And this is the kind of stuff that theologians love to sit up late at night talking about. And when I was in academia, this was... One of my favorite aspects of it was just dialoguing with other faculty members in the faculty lounge and just, you know, this kind of stuff. But a Calvinist, if they stop and think about it, and I've had many of them say this, would say if a person is regenerate and they get struck by lightning before they can express faith, they'll go to heaven. They also say, get this, this is why most Calvinists, do not believe that all uh, aborted babies go to heaven. What they say is, if they were elect, they go to heaven, the non-elect go to hell. Because it's election that saves you. It's God that saves you, not your faith. So in other words, because faith is just the involuntary or even incidental Response to regeneration, and regeneration is what saves you, and regeneration connects directly to election, which connects directly to Christ's atonement, dying only for the elect. The determinative factor in where you spend eternity is are you elect or not? Faith is the normal, natural outgrowth of the elect. They will, once they're regenerated, express faith. But in extreme cases, they would argue theologically, that a person who's never expressed faith might still be in heaven because they just didn't have time, right? But God elected them. Isn't
1: God sovereign over when they die?
0: Oh, He's sovereign, but apparently there's some limitations to that. So, um, so again, what what we've done? Let me just review before we wrap up. We're, we're defining total depravity, which they believe is the fact that man has no ability to believe the gospel. Dead men can't believe we looked at several quotes about that they all love to quote Spurgeon dead man can't believe and so forth and so on and then when they believe that faith is the involuntary response to salvation not the cause of it they go to uh, Ephesians 2 8 and 9 and this is a key verse in fact it's not an overstatement to say much of the Calvinistic scheme hangs on their understanding of this verse And so I want to take just a moment to explain why they're wrong. So they say, so let's read the verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. They believe gift refers to faith. So when it says it, the pronoun it, the antecedent of that is faith is the gift. But the gift of God cannot possibly be faith grammatically, as the famous A.T. Robertson, and I recommended him in my list of resources a few weeks ago, uh, his word pictures in the New Testament. You can look this up for yourself, volume four, page five hundred and twenty-five. This, the pronoun this, translated it, is neuter. And in Greek, the pronouns have to agree with their antecedent in gender and number. In other words, if the antecedent is plural, the pronoun has to be plural. Like you wouldn't say, you know, these uh, uh, cows, you, you wouldn't then say this cows, right? Mm-hmm. It's this cow or these cows. Mm-hmm. Same thing in English. But in Greek, it also has to agree in gender. We don't have gender in our grammar. And they're, by the way, trying to take away gender in our biology too, but we, <laughs> we don't have it in our grammar. But in Greek, they do. So it can be uh, feminine, masculine or neuter and so the pronoun it is neuter and faith and grace are both feminine and the reason the pronoun it is is neuter is because and this should be so clear from reading the totality of paul's writings is that salvation is the gift in other words you could easily translate this this is the gift for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift, not faith. Faith's not the gift. See, so it just doesn't work. Um, and I should have put this on the screen, but again, the pronoun that not of yourselves is neuter. So that gift is not of yourselves. It is not is is the is the gift. Uh, so. Uh, Calvin himself, by the way, this is the the big uh, irony of it all, is that Calvin himself doesn't agree with their using that verse to prove that faith is involuntary and something that God must do. In response to this verse and commentating on this verse, Calvin says, he, Paul, does not mean that faith is the gift of God, but salvation is given to us by God or that we obtain it by the gift of God. So, I mean... I, I, it, to me, it's simple, uh, but you see this argument again and again and again, especially by you know, lay people who have embraced a Calvinist view. They'll, you know, they'll say, you can't even believe the gospel unless God gives you the faith. See, it's, it's the gift of God. No, no, no. Salvation is the gift of God. Faith is what we do to receive it. So they are confusing the gift with the means of receiving it and I've, I've talked about this a lot at the risk of being overly repetitive, in the physical realm, we understand conceptually that there is a gift and there's a means of accepting the gift. If I hand you a present, the present is the gift. How do you receive the gift? You clutch hold of it with your hands. So there's a gift and a means of receiving it. Same thing is true spiritually. These are not complex concepts. It's just that they're in, in the unseen spiritual realm. The gift is eternal life eternal salvation how do we receive the gift 160 times the bible says by faith so faith is the mech think of faith as the hands and salvation as the present and what they're saying is no the hands are the present and this present is the present so to receive the present you need a present that's what they're saying so they it's a category confusion they are confusing the means of receiving the gift with the gift itself. Does that make sense? So we'll stop there. Uh, Again, we've totally not uh, exhausted the discussion or the topic of total depravity. But next week, I'm going to show you how the Bible teaches we can, in fact, receive the gift of salvation. And that dead means without spiritual life. It doesn't mean without the ability to believe. That's nowhere mentioned in Scripture. That's an extrapolation to fit their system. Uh, dead means, you know, what God said it meant in the garden. If you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. Did that mean at that moment they had the they were incapable of uh, receiving God's redemption? No. Uh, but we'll, we'll we'll make that case. So, any closing thoughts or questions before we wrap up? All right. Well, thanks for giving me 20 extra minutes, and we will uh, pick up again next Wednesday. Look forward to that, and uh, you guys have a great rest of the evening.